Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 257. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Have we had some rain in this northeast of England this week, or this day actually? It is pouring down. Roads to my, I live on this, I live in this little village next to the coast on the, on the northeast of England. And the rain, honestly, there's a few of the roads have totally flooded and you can't get out that way, out of the village. Over the, <laughs> one of these isolated little villages coming up very soon. But I'm still here. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have JJ Campanella with his science news. Then the main fiction is The Immortals of Atlantis by Brian Stapleford. Then to round things off, we have Adam Fjord with his cheap skates. Now, did I, did I get Adam's surname right there? Well, who knows? Adam, looking forward to this, sir. So we jump straight in with science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and obligations, my good and loyal listeners, and welcome to this September 2012 Science News Update. I'm your host for this lovely and amazing science podcast, Jim Campanella. The new school year has begun, and at the moment I'm swamped with new work, but I always try to find a few minutes to set aside to report back to all of you fine listeners. I've been collecting new stories of particular interest since August, and I think you'll find them uh, interesting. First, a couple of responses to emails that I have gotten over the last several months in reference to science stories. Sorry if it's taken me a while to get back to your queries. 
First, listener John Porter writes asking me why I never cover stories like the newest Mars landing or the discovery of the Higgs boson particle. Why do I always stick to the obscure stories? John, I have a very simple answer to that. Stories like those you mentioned are covered impressively in the common press. In fact, they are probably covered to death given the present invasiveness of the media. Unless I feel there is an aspect of those stories that has been overlooked, misunderstood, or ignored, I usually try to stay away from them since my own input will probably just be redundant. I try to cover topics that may be a bit more obscure but still have a certain wow factor to them. If any listener wants my opinion on a particular science news story of interest to them, then email me in care of the Starship Sofa or campanella at uvulaaudio.com. The second email is from Mark Zanfardino, who wants to clarify a point that I made in a podcast a couple of months ago about quantum teleportation. I mentioned that I had no idea why physicists used the names Alice and Bob as the sender and receiver of a quantum message. Mark informed me that in the science of cryptography, Alice and Bob stand for A and B. Cryptographers started using Alice and Bob because using letters, such as A and B, just became too confusing in explaining various scenarios of sending messages back and forth. Apparently, there are even more names that represent C, D, E, etc. C is Carol, a participant in three and four party protocols, whatever those are. D is Dave, a participant in four party protocols. E is Eve, an eavesdropper. Wow, even with names it sounds complicated. I have a feeling that cryptography may actually get a bit easier with quantum teleportation if it is ever perfected. Thank you, Mark. The third letter of the evening is from Adam Pract, or Pratched. I'm sorry if I don't get the name pronunciation correct. Uh, Adam wrote me a couple of months back. Adam was concerned about the story that I talked about from Popular Science about homebrew molecular biologists who do their genetic tinkering in their garages, basements, and kitchens. Adam felt that I was being very hard on these people who simply love science, and I was being far too negative. Adam, when I read your note, I was of two minds. Yes, you are right. As a scientist who loves science himself and feels that science is very often denigrated in our society as being useful only for getting out the newest model of cell phone, it's great that there are people out there who are so enthused that they want to do science and make a difference. And Adam is right. Uh, I should applaud these genetic hackers for wanting to get involved. Adam pointed out that I should have been more constructive and suggested alternatives such as working with the enzyme folding protein game that is available online to suggest different 3D protein structures, or getting actual scientists involved in mentoring gene hacker clubs. And I'll mention another creative alternative in one of the science stories this evening. Adam, I didn't mean to be as hard-boiled as I sounded, but at the same time, it still worries me that common citizens may be putting themselves and others at risk. By the way, you may remember that the story I told you a couple of months back about genetics hacking involved a woman who wanted to make glow-in-the-dark yogurt using green fluorescent protein, GFP. A colleague of mine pointed out that yogurt with bacteria that produced GFP wouldn't glow in the dark unless you ate it under an ultraviolet lamp, that is a black light. I am not really sure how practical that is. Okay. The actual first story of the night involves one of those constructive alternatives 
for someone who wants to get involved in hard science but does not necessarily have the background. Crowdsourcing, well, actually crowdfunding, has been around now for several years. Independent filmmakers and artists have used crowdsourced donations to help complete projects that may never otherwise have gotten off the ground. The most famous of these is Kickstarter.com, which has funded a great many well-respected projects over the last couple of years. Well, crowdsourcing has now come to science. A number of science-funding websites for the common man have sprung up over the last few months. I'll tell you actually about a couple of these. Microriza.com is one, and it connects scientists with donors who can potentially fund their research. This is a Seattle-based company, and they screen proposed projects for feasibility and novelty, and they run checks on applicants to prevent fraud. And once approved, researchers can post videos and a Q&A about their projects on the site. And like Kickstarter, visitors can back the project of their choice. Another of these is SciFund, whose home is the site rockethub.com, and it's now active in its third round of funding. Besides allowing scientists to get funding for their research work, the SciFund website states, quote, The SciFund challenge is also a way to get scientists to directly engage with the public. Crowdfunding forces scientists to build public interaction and outreach into their research from day one. It's a new mechanism to couple science and society, and one that we think has a lot of promise, unquote. EurekaFund.org is a third funding site which seems to be mostly interested in small engineering projects that help people. A fourth is SciFlies.org, which has been very successful so far in funding scientists. And finally, there is ScienceDonors.com, which has a website but still has not opened its doors officially for donors to start looking at proposals. Now, all these places pretty much work in the same way. There's a deadline for funding. Donors offer money. And if the deadline occurs with the funding goal reached, only then are the donors charged. If the funding goal is not reached in the requisite time, then no one is charged. Donors are lulled into donations by little extras, just like PBS provides. If you donate at a certain level, you'll be named in the acknowledgement of any scientific paper that's published. Or you may get a new species named after you, or your initials in an enzyme name, something like that. It's very difficult to get funding from the USDA, NIH, NSF now, and the current rate of funding for all these science proposals in the United States is about 20%. Crowdsourcing will likely increase that success rate. I mean, I'm certainly considering giving it a try. I mean, I have some cool ideas that may draw in some funding, though probably not cool enough for the government, I suspect. If crowdfunding is not enough for scientists... Some astronomers have started crowdsourcing in order to help analyze their data from the sky. Dr. Alyssa Goodman of Harvard University reported a new study in August in the Astronomical Journal about applying crowdsourcing to astronomy. After performing a Yahoo image search for photos of the comet Holmes, which whizzed by the Earth in 2007, Goodman's team used the returned images to reconstruct the comet's orbit in three dimensions showing that astronomers can take advantage of data provided by an unwitting group of participants. Dr. Dustin Long, collaborator of Goodman, decided to harness the power of picture-posting astro-observers on the web, and he asked an online computer program called astometry.net to filter through the images. 
Astometry.net uses the objects in each image, stars, for example, to determine where in the sky the image is located. And initially, the Yahoo search returned over 2,400 images to Lang. Of those 2,400 images, there were even things that were not astronomical. Lang said, quote, There were even two cats in the original search results. That's one in a thousand. I wonder if that's the going rate for images of cats on the web, unquote. Lang used astometry.net to narrow the results to 1,299 usable images. This was a pretty crappy collection of photos snapped in different locations with different cameras and with different exposures. Then the team reconstructed the comet's orbit in three dimensions. The amazing part was that they came very close to the orbit determined by NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Lang says, quote, This is a look at what we could do with really, really heterogeneous data that we really don't know anything about. It was more work than we expected, unquote. Lang's newest project is to assemble an image-based map of the entire sky using only Internet-sourced photos. And I wish him luck. I've certainly used sources like that. The concept of data mining, the net, is one that biologists have been doing with genetic data for at least a decade. Now, getting completely off the topic of crowds, let's turn our attention to swarms for just a moment. I don't think that wasps swarm, but I thought that would be a nice lead-in. Here's a short piece of science news from Dr. F. Javier Ortiz Sanchez and his lab, which just published a paper on wasps in the journal Frontier in Zoology this month. Aposematism is a biological term, which sounds a lot like it should be taught in a kid's science program, like the, uh, the wild crats that my children watch, and it should be right up there with migration and camouflage. Unfortunately, it might be a little complex for kids, but it's really kind of cool. Aposematism is actually a defense system that certain animals use against predators. It consists of a toxicity warning using conspicuous coloration. Now, what does that mean? Well, for example, monarch butterflies use it to indicate that they are poisonous to eat. But more nasty animals employ it as well to indicate their nastiness. If the toxin production and aposematic coloration is costly, only individuals in good physical condition can both produce abundant poison and striking coloration. European paper wasps advertise the size of their poison glands to potential predators. Ortiz Sanchez found that the brighter the color, the larger the poison gland. Essentially, the wasp is signaling that it is so strong and so healthy that it can waste energy producing bright color, and a strong and healthy wasp will contain a lot of poison. If you were afraid of wasps before that story, well, then at least now you know which ones to stay farthest away from, the ones that are brightest. The next news story is one that is probably as big as the Mars Lander or the Higgs boson, but it's likely that the popular press will completely ignore it because they can't figure out how to make it sexy. For the last decade since the Human Genome Project was completed, I've lectured to my genetics and molecular biology classes that up to 95% of the human genome is junk DNA. It does little or nothing and is primarily made up of repeated sequences or sequences that simply do not code for a protein. Well, for the last several years, the ENCODE project has taken all human genomic DNA and analyzed it in close detail to figure out what exactly is going on in the DNA between genes. ENCODE stands for Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. 
It involved 440 scientists from 32 labs in the United States, United Kingdom, Spain, Singapore, and Japan. And since 2007, they have collected more than 15 terabytes of raw data that describes places in the genome that contain regulatory binding sites, areas of frequent DNA modification, or roles in managing larger chromatin structure of DNA. And this month, they are publishing at least part of their results in the journal Science. It turns out that so-called junk DNA is anything but. 80% of the genome seems to be regulatory in nature. That means that it functionally controls when, where, and how genes get turned on and off. That means that only about 15% of the genome is actually spacer DNA, junk DNA with little or no function. That's an amazing revelation, and it tells us just how complicated regulation and growth and development may actually be. If it takes 80% of the DNA to control 5%, we are talking about a very complex system here. One of the leading researchers in the ENCODE project, Dr. Eric Green of the National Human Genome Research Institute, said, quote, For basic researchers, the ENCODE data represent a powerful resource for exploring fundamental questions about how life is encoded in our genome. For more clinically oriented researchers, the ENCODE data provide key information about which genome sequences are functionally important. Unquote. Placement and function of regulatory sites in DNA has been done in individual regions before, but this new map is the most complete picture to date. It provides a launching off spot for future studies in almost every avenue of genetic research. The maps were created using a variety of molecular genetic techniques to locate binding sites for 119 transcription factors and histones. The experiments were performed in 150 different cell types from different organs and developmental stages. The reason for that is you needed to create a full picture of functionality for all the genes and exactly what they did everywhere. To see how much of previously identified disease-associated variation is located within DNA regulatory elements, Green's team treated hundreds of cell types with nuclease DNase 1. Nucleases digest DNA into bits. DNA sites with high levels of cleavage by DNase 1, called DNase 1 hypersensitive regions, DHS, are known to contain DNA regulatory elements. From this data, they determined the placement of these hypersensitive regions and then aligned them with more than 5,000 gene variants associated with 207 diseases and 447 traits identified in the Human Genome Database. In the science paper, the team reported that 76% of these disease-associated gene variants fell within hypersensitive regions. The next step is to home in on each variant and determine the exact function of the regulatory region it affects and how it may cause disease. These are major, major breakthroughs in genetics and our understanding of how DNA works to control health. We will see how the popular press handles it, if at all, I suspect, since I have yet to see it in any newspaper or on any website that they're not really going to say anything. I'm always a bit stunned when a new piece of science comes out that completely blows away decades of dogma that has been taught. One of those new research papers came out in the journal Nature last month from Dr. Ken Page's lab at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. 
For years and years, I have taught that every cell in your body has the same genome. That is, there are generally no sequence differences between your heart and lungs and kidney, etc. And for the most part, science has supported that, with things like tumor tissues being an exception. Well, Ken Page has found that there do appear to be sequence differences between organs. Well, all right, not in human bodies, but in plants. But this is still extraordinary because we didn't think that plant DNA sequences differed between tissues any more than humans or animals. Page sequenced the genomes of tissue taken from the entire black cottonwood tree, from their very tip of the crowns to their roots. And what he found was over 100,000 mutations that were unique to a particular tissue sample differing from other parts of the same tree. Page chose the black cottonwood for the study because it lives up to 200 years and can produce offspring via new shoots that share the same root system as the parent. While clonally reproduced organisms often share a majority of their genes, the researchers found more similarity between the tops of two different trees than between the top and the bottom of the same tree. Mutations that occur in body cells are called somatic mutations. Those are mutations that occur in cells other than sperm or eggs. Those types of mutations are familiar to horticulturists who have long bred new plant varieties by grafting mutant branches onto normal stocks. But until now, no one has cataloged the total number of somatic mutations in an individual plant. Page said, quote, When people study plants, they'll often take a cutting from a leaf and assume it's representative of the plant's entire genome. That may not be the case. You may need to take multiple tissues to examine. Unquote. Certainly, that's the assumption that I have made for years in my own research work. I assumed that every part of the plant was the same genetically. The tissue-specific mutations affected mainly genes involved in cell death, immune responses, metabolism, DNA binding, and cell communication. Page thinks this may be because many of the mutations are harmful and that the tree reacts by destroying the mutated tissues or altering its metabolic pathways and the way it controls its genes, which leads to further mutation. The findings have paralleled cancer studies. Earlier this year, scientists published in the New England Journal of Medicine a study that showed separate parts of the same tumor can evolve independently and build up distinct genetic mutations, meaning that single biopsies give only a narrow view of the tumor's diversity. In fact, I think I, I even mentioned that in passing in one of these podcasts months ago. The last story of the night is a very cool one, which I had intended to do anyway, but was suggested also to me by Glenn Schmelzel, one of our listeners. It's scary, but Glenn was able to predict the kind of story that would catch my attention. I mentioned a few months ago in passing that a new extinct human species had been discovered in Russia that seemed to be around at the same time as a Neanderthal. This new species has been dubbed the Denisovans because of where they were found in southern Siberia. Only a piece of a female's finger bone was found to do some basic genetic analysis and sequencing. The researchers could not do more because the ancient DNA was fragmented and degraded. In a major breakthrough in methodology, Dr. Matthias Meyer, researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, wanted to know more about her. So Meyer developed a new sequencing method to produce high-quality genomes 
despite the low quality of the DNA extracted from ancient fossils, such as this finger bone. Meyer's work was reported in the journal Science at the end of August. The way that Meyer did his magic was to copy and amplify the DNA molecules so that there were enough of them to study in sequence. Meyer stated, quote, you have to make many copies so you can read them out, unquote. This is principally pretty difficult for ancient DNA samples, which are often made up of tiny fragments of single-stranded DNA rather than the long strands of double-stranded DNA that are usually extracted from living samples. To repair this single-stranded library for sequencing, Meyer attached short artificial DNA adapters to the ends of the fragments to hold them in place during amplification. The amplification process itself was performed using an enzymatic method called PCR. PCR allows you to copy pieces of DNA with a special DNA polymerase enzyme, and you can copy them millions or even billions of times over and over to amplify them. In molecular genetic parlance, a library is a series of DNA fragments that make up a whole genome that have been separately cloned into either viruses or bacteria, and each clone represents one volume of the library of the genome. To me, this all sounds like shades of Jurassic Park. Using DNA left over from the original Denisovan sequencing effort and his new technique, Meyer and his associates sequenced her genome 31 times over, making the results as complete and precise as the genome of any living human person. Meyer said, quote, What is particularly fascinating is that we're now able to look across the whole genome at all the mutations that have happened since humans separated from Denisovans and their close relatives of the Neanderthals. We can look at a complete catalog of what's happened in this very last step of human history, unquote. The coolest part about Meyer's discoveries is that from the Denisovans, there is a pretty short list of changes during those last steps that Myers mentioned in the last couple hundred thousand years. The paper states that some of the changes are in genes related to the wiring of the nervous system, including a couple that have been implicated in autism, and one gene that is regulated by FOXP2, which is involved in speech and language, as well as synaptic plasticity. That's neuronal symplastic plasticity, by the way. For those of you who aren't neurobiologists, what plasticity means is, is the ability of a brain circuit to be able to be changed easily for learning purposes. I actually mentioned this months ago after the first discovery of the Denisovan, but the researchers learned that Denisovans contributed genes to modern humans, but to varying extents throughout the world. Oddly enough, these ancient ancestors share more genes with people from Papua New Guinea than any other population on Earth studied. In the end, the research found that gene flow from Neanderthals to modern humans was not a single gene flow event from Neanderthals to the ancestors of all non-Africans. That was the original hypothesis based on the partial 2010 first draft of the Denisovan genome. Meyer said, quote, Something more complicated must have happened. For example, there may have been at least two Neanderthal gene flow events, or a dilution of the initial Neanderthal genetic material in Europe by subsequent expansion of modern humans out of Africa. Unquote. Myers is planning on using his new high-res sequencing technique to sequence more Neanderthal genomes that are very low quality, like the Denisovan girls. The more sequencing of these ancient genomes, the better the picture will get on how modern humans arose and where our final genome eventually came from.
Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care, stay away from bright-colored insects, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go. We, ha- we, we normally have a little bit of trouble, what we do all the time, trying to get files over to one another. And it looks like, I think, you send it is starting to like, crash and burn as well, that service. And for some reason, we can, I can never get Jim's straight link from his, his site as well. So now we're going through Dropbox, Jim. So we'll keep on trying, sir. <laughs> Just got it yesterday, this file. So thank you very much. Next up is the main fiction, and I'll give you a little heads up. It is by Brian Stapleford. Brian Stapleford was born in 1948, British science fiction writer who was published for more than 70 novels. His earlier books were published under the name Brian M. Stapleford, but more recently he's dropped that middle initial M. He's also wrote under the pseudonym Brian Craig for a couple of very early works and again for some more recent works. The pseudonym comes from his first name of himself and of a school friend from the 1960s, Craig A. McIntosh, with whom he jointly published some very early work. Born in Shipley, Yorkshire, Stapleford is a graduate with a degree in biology from the University of York. This story that we're about to hear, The Immortals of Atlantis, was first published in Dislocations, July 2007. This is the collection, the anthology by Ian Waits for his New Con Press. It then went on to feature in the year's best science fiction, the 25th annual collection by Gardner Does Was. I mean, if you get a look at, you know, just what Brian Stapleton, his back history of work, it is staggering the amount of work that, um, I mean, just the short fictions. There's a couple when you go on to the, the Internet Science Fiction database, you know, you go to Moorcock's page and you have a look there and you can just, Moorcock's short stories, you know, just the body of work he's got. Brian Stilford has just, you know what I mean, 1965 when he, he wrote with, you know, Craig A. McIntosh, Beyond Time is Ages, 1965, and then right, right, you know, to now, 2012, The Seeds from the Mountains of Madness, 2012. Just, you know, like I say, staggering. But we're going to play The Immortals of Atlantis, and it is narrated by Crispy. Now, Crispy has done, Chris has done a couple of stories way back when in, you know, Starship Sova's history as well. And hopefully we'll try and get another, because he's got this great English kind of powerful voice there. So, Chris, Crispy, please get back in touch, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Immortals of Atlantis by Brian Stableford, narrated by Crispy. Sheila never answered the door when the bell rang, because there was never anyone there that she wanted to see, and often someone there that she was desperate to avoid. The latter category ranged from debt collectors and the police to Darren's friends, who were all apprentice drug dealers, and Tracy's friends, who were mostly veteran statutory rapists. Not everyone took no for an answer, of course. The fact that debt collectors and policemen weren't really entitled to kick the door in didn't seem to be much of a disincentive. It was, however, very unusual for anyone to use subtler means of entry, so Sheila was really quite surprised when the white-haired man appeared in her sitting room without being preceded by the slightest sound of splintering wood. I did ring, he said, labouring the obvious, but you didn't answer. Perhaps, she said, not getting up from her armchair or reaching for the remote, that was because I didn't want to let you in. In spite of the fact that she hadn't even reached for the remote, the TV switched itself off. It wasn't a matter of spontaneous flipping into standby mode, as it sometimes did, but of switching itself off. 
It was 11 o'clock in the morning, so she hadn't so much been watching it as using it to keep her company in the absence of anything better. But the interruption seemed a trifle rude all the same. Did you do that? she asked. Yes, he said. We need to talk. The phrasing made her wonder if he might be one of her ex-boyfriends, most of whom she could hardly remember because their acquaintance had been so brief, but he certainly didn't look like one. He was wearing a suit and tie. The suit was sufficiently old-fashioned and worn to have come from the bargain end of an Oxfam rail, but it was still a suit. He was also way too old, 60 if he was a day, and way too thin, with hardly an ounce of spare flesh on him. The fact that he was so tall made him look almost skeletal. Sheila would have found it easier to believe in him if he'd been wearing a hooded cloak and carrying a scythe. In fact, he was carrying a huge briefcase, so huge that it was a miracle he'd been able to cross the estate without being mugged. What do you want? Sheila asked bluntly. You aren't who you think you are, Sheila, was his reply to that, which immediately made her think religious nut. The Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses had stopped coming to the estate years ago because there were far easier places in the world to do missionary work. Somalia, for instance, or Iraq. But it wasn't inconceivable that there were people in the world who could still believe that God's protection even extended to places like this. Everybody around here is who they think they are, she told him. Nobody has any illusions about being anybody. This is the end of the world, and I'm not talking rapture. I knew this wasn't going to be easy, the tall man said. There's no point wasting time. I'm truly sorry to have to do this, but it really is for the best. He put his suitcase down, pounced on her, dragged her to her feet and bound her hands behind her back with a piece of slender but incredibly strong cord. She screamed as loudly as she could, but she knew that no one was going to take any notice. He must have known that too because he didn't try and stop her immediately. He selected the sturdiest of her three dining chairs, set it in the middle of the room and started tying her ankles to the legs of the chair. My boyfriend will be home any minute, Sheila said. He's a bouncer. He'll break you into little pieces. You don't have a boyfriend, Sheila the white-haired man informed her. You never had a relationship that lasted longer than a fortnight. You've always claimed that it's because all men are bastards, but you've always suspected that it might be you, and you're right. You really do put them off and drive them away, no matter how hard you try not to. Sheila was trussed up tightly now, with more cord passed around her body, holding her tight to the back of the chair. The way she was positioned made it extremely unlikely that he intended to rape her, but that wasn't at all reassuring. Rape, she understood. Rape she could cope with and survive. I do have a son, she told him. He may not be as big as you, but he's in a gang and he's vicious. He carries a knife. He might even have graduated to a gun by now, and if he hasn't, some of his mates certainly have. All true, the white man conceded readily enough. But it leaves out of account the fact that Darren hardly ever comes home anymore because he finds you as uncomfortable to be with as all the other men who've briefly passed through your wretched life. To put it brutally, you disgust him. Tracy loves me, Sheila retorted, feeling far greater pressure to make that point than to ask the man with the briefcase how he knew Darren's name. The briefcase was open now, and the tall man was pulling things out at a rate of knots. Weird things, like the apparatus of a chemistry set. There were bottles and jars, flasks and tripods, even a mortar and pestle. There was also something that looked like a glorified butane cigarette lighter, whose flame ignited at a touch and became more intense in response to another. That's true too. Her remorseless tormentor went on. There's a lot of love in Tracy, just as there's always a lot of love in you, always yearning for more and better outlets. She can't hang on to relationships either, can she? She hasn't given up hope yet, though. Darren wouldn't be any use because the mitochondrial supplement atrophies in males long before they reach puberty. But I could have gone to Tracy instead of you, and would probably have found her more cooperative, 
It wouldn't have been sporting, though. She's still a child, and you're entitled to your chance. It wouldn't be fair simply to pass you over. Her life will change irrevocably, too, once you're fully awake. So will Darren's, although he probably won't be quite as grateful. That was too much. What the fuck are you talking about, you stupid fuck? Sheila demanded, although she knew he would see that she was cracking up and that he had succeeded in freaking her out with his psychopathic performance. My name, my true name, not the one on my driving license, is Samaradak, the tall man said. This body used to belong to an oceanographer named Arthur Bayless, PhD, but I was able to rescue him from an unbelievably dull life wallowing in clathrate-laden ooze. The predatory DNA that crystallized in my viral avatar dispossessed his native DNA little by little, in every single cell in his body, and then set about re-sculpting the neuronal connections in his brain. The headaches were terrible. I wish I could say that you won't have to suffer anything similar, but you will. Not nearly for as long, but even more intensely. I wish it were as simple as feeding you a dose of virus, impregnated ooze, but it isn't. Your predatory DNA is already latent in your cells, secreted in mitochondrial supplements awaiting activation. The activation process is complex, but not very difficult if you have all the right raw materials. I have, although it wasn't easy to locate them all. It will take an hour to trigger the process, and six months thereafter to complete the transition. Sheila had hardly understood a word of the detail, but she thought she had the gist of the plan. Transition to what? she asked, thinking of the Incredible Hulk and Mr Hyde. Oh, don't worry, he said. You'll still look human. Your hair will turn white overnight, but you'll be able to watch the flab and cellulite melt away. You won't look like a supermodel, but you will live for thousands of years. In a sense, given that the real you is locked away in your mitochondrial supplements, you already have. Your other self is one of the immortals of Atlantis. Sheila had always felt that she was fully capable of dealing with psychopaths. She knew so many but she knew from bitter experience that negotiating with delusional schizophrenics was a different kettle of fish. She started screaming again, just as loudly and even more desperately than before. In all probability, she thought, there would be at least a dozen people in the neighbouring flats who could hear her. The chances of one of them responding in any way whatsoever were pretty remote. Screaming passed for normal behaviour in these parts. But it might be her last hope. Arthur Bayliss, PhD, alias Samaradak, obviously thought so too because he crammed a handkerchief into her open mouth, then used more of his ubiquitous cord to make a gag holding it in place. Then, he got busy with the chemistry set. Sheila had no idea what the ingredients were that her captor was mixing up in his flasks, but she wouldn't have been at all surprised if she'd been told that they include virgin's blood, adder's venom, and the hallucinogenic slime that American cane toads were rumoured to secrete. There were certainly toadstool caps, aromatic roots, and perfumed flowers among the things that he was grinding up in the mortar and Sheila was prepared to assume that every one of them was as poisonous as deadly nightshade, and as dangerous to mental health as the most magical magic mushrooms in the world. The tall man talked while he worked. I'd far rather observe the principle of informed consent, he said, even though I'm not really a PhD anymore, let alone a physician, but it's not really practical in the circumstances. Your false self will be bound to refuse to realise your true self, no matter how worthless a person you presently are or how wretched a life you presently lead, because selves are, by definition, selfish. He paused to deploy a spatula, measuring out a dose of red powder. He tipped it into the flask whose contents were presently seething away over the burner. He didn't use scales, but the measurement was obviously delicate. If caterpillars had the choice, he continued, they'd never consent to turn into butterflies. Some kinds of larvae don't have to, you know. 
It's called pedogenesis. Instead of pupating and re-emerging as adults, they can grow sex organs and breed as juveniles, sometimes for several generations. They still transmit the genes their descendants will eventually need to affect metamorphosis, though, in response to the appropriate environmental trigger so that those descendants, however remote, can eventually recover their true nature, their true glory, and their true destiny. He paused again, this time to dribble a few drops of liquid out of the mortar, where he'd crushed a mixture of plant tissues, into a second flask that had not yet been heated at all. That's what the immortals of Atlantis did, he went on. When they realised that they were about to lose all their cultural wealth once their homeland disappeared beneath the sea, they knew that the next generation, and many generations after, would have to revert to the cultural level of Stone Age barbarians and take thousands of years to achieve a tolerable level of civilization. But they wanted to give them the chance to become something better, when circumstances became ripe again. So the immortals hid themselves away the best way they could. The Atlantean elite were great biotechnologists, you see. They considered our kind of heavy metal technology to be inexpressibly vulgar, fit only for the toilsome use of slaves. This time he stopped to make a careful inspection of some kind of paste he'd been blending, lifting a spoonful to within a couple of inches of his pale grey eyes. He didn't have a microscope either. What would our elite do, do you think, he resumed, if the Antarctic ice melted and the sea swamped their cities? and the methane gushing out of the suboceanic clathrates mopped up all the oxygen and rendered the air unbreathable. I think they'd retreat underground, burrowing deep down and going into cultural hibernation for a thousand or a hundred thousand years, until the ever-loyal plants had restored the breathability of the atmosphere again. But that's not going to happen, because you and I, and the other immortals, when we've located and restored a sufficient number, are going to see that it doesn't. We'll have all the knowledge once you're fully awake, and we'll have the authority. The only way the world can be saved is for everyone to work together and do what's necessary, and that isn't going to happen unless someone takes control and reinstitutes a sensible system of slavery. The immortals will be able to do that once we've resurrected enough of them. This is just the beginning. He took one flask off the burner and replaced it with another. The pause in his monologue was hardly perceptible. As you might be able to see, he said, gesturing expansively to take in all the different compounds he was making up, the process of revitalization has five stages. That's five different drugs, all of them freshly prepared to very specific recipes, administered in swift sequence. Don't worry, it doesn't involve any injections or even swallowing anything with a nasty taste. All you have to do is breathe them in. It's even simpler than smoking crack. I know it looks complicated, and it could all go wrong if I made the slightest mistake in the preparation or administration, but you have to trust me. Dr. Bayless has never done anything like this before but Samaradak has. He hasn't lost the knack, even though he's spent the last few thousand years dormant in the suboceanic ooze encoded as a crystalline supervirus. Everything's just about ready. You mustn't be afraid, Sheila. You really... He stopped abruptly as the doorbell rang. For a second or two, he seemed seriously disconcerted. But then he relaxed again. He knew her children's names, and more about her than anyone had the right to do. He knew that she never answered the doorbell. For the first time in her life, Sheila yearned to hear the sound of someone kicking the door in, splintering the wood around the lock and the bolts. Instead, she heard several sets of shuffling footsteps moving away from the flat. If she'd screamed then, it might just have made a difference, but she couldn't. Good, said the man with the PhD. We can get on with the job in peace. The first drug, which the tall man administered simply by holding a loaded spoon beneath her nostrils, made Sheila feel nauseous. It wasn't that it stank. Its odour was delicately sweet, like the scent of sugar porridge heating up in the microwave, 
but that it disturbed her internal equilibrium in a fashion she'd never experienced before. The second, which he administered by pouring warm liquid onto cotton wool and holding it in the same position, disturbed her even more profoundly. At first, it just tickled, except that she'd never been tickled inside before, in her lungs and liver and intestines instead of her skin. Then the tickling turned into prickling, and it felt as if a thorn bush were growing inside her, jabbing its spines into every last corner of her soft red flesh. She hadn't known that it was possible to endure such agony without being rendered unconscious by shock and terror. Just be patient, he said infuriatingly. It will pass. Your cells are coming back to life, Sheila. They've been half dead for so long, much longer than your own meagre lifetime. A metazoan body is just a single cell's way of making more cells, you see. Sex and death are just means of shuffling the genetic deck so that cells are capable of evolution. All metazoan cells are partly shut down. They have to be, to specialize them for specific physiological functions they can all be reawakened wholly or partially by the right stimulus. The pain abated, but not because her captor's voice had soothed it away. It abated because the second drug had now completed its work, having been scrupulously ferried to every hinterland of her being by her dutiful bloodstream. It had taken time, but that phase was finished. Sheila felt better, and not just in the way she usually felt better after feeling ill or depressed, which was only a kind of dull relief comparable to that obtained by such proverbial means as ceasing to bang one's head against a brick wall. She actually felt better, in a positive sense. It was a very strange sensation by virtue of its unfamiliarity, but there were still three drugs to go. The ex-PhD had been measuring her condition with his uncannily skillful eyes. He had to get the timing right, but he was as adept at that as he had been at the mixing and the cooking. He had the third compound ready, and he lifted the whole flask up, swirling its contents around to make the vapour rise up from its neck. This time the effect was narcotic, or at least anaesthetic. Sheila. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I felt that she was falling asleep, but she didn't lose consciousness. And she didn't begin to dream. It was a little like getting high, albeit more in the crystal meth vein than a heroin kick, but it was quite distinct. For one thing, it didn't seem that she was only feeling it in her head or in her nerves. It seemed that she was feeling it in every organic fibre of her being, and then some. It made her feel much bigger than she was, and much more powerful, but not, alas, powerful enough to break the bonds that held her tight to the chair. The anaesthetic effect wasn't dulling or straightforwardly euphoric, but something that promised to take her far beyond the reach of pain. It was, alas, flattering only to deceive. It hadn't taken her beyond the reach of pain at all, but merely to some existential plane where pain came in different, previously unknown forms. The fourth drug, the first one whose vapour was hot enough to scold the mucous membranes of her nasal passages and bronchi, was a real bastard. It gave her the migraine to end all migraines, visual distortions and all. It plunged a million daggers into her flesh. It sent waves of agony rippling through her like sound waves, as if she were imprisoned in a gigantic church bell smashed by a sequence of steel hammers. But the vibrations were silent, even though she hadn't gone deaf. She could still hear Samaradak rambling on and make out every word in spite of her excruciation. You'll begin to feel more yourself soon, he said. You'll begin to feel Sheila slipping away like the husk of a redundant cocoon. You'll be able to sense your true being and personality. Not well enough for a while to put a name to yourself, but well enough to know that you exist. You'll be able to catch glimpses of the possibilities inherent within you. Not just the power, but the aesthetic sensibility, the awareness of the physiological transactions of hormones and enzymes, the ecstasy of the mitochondria, and the triumph of the phagocytes. The agony is just a kind of birth trauma, a necessary shock. As it fades, you'll begin to sense what you really are and what you might eventually. The last word of the sentence died on his thin lips as the doorbell sounded again. This time the repeated ring was swiftly followed by the sound of fists pounding on the door. No one shouted police though. What they shouted instead was, Darren, we know you're in there! The boys at the door didn't have Samaradak's uncanny powers of intuition. What they thought they knew was utterly false. Wherever Darren was hiding, it wasn't a home. As the white-haired man reached for his spoon again, with a hand that had begun ever so slightly to tremble, the sound of thumping fists was replaced by the sound of thudding boots. The door had far too little strength in it to resist for long. It splintered and crashed against the hallway wall. Samaradak was already holding the spoon up to Sheila's nose. Wisps of vapour were already curling up into her nostrils. She could already sense its exotic odour, which she normally wouldn't have liked at all, but which somehow seemed at this particular moment to be the most wonderful scent she'd ever encountered. Time seemed to slow down. The sitting room door burst open in slow motion, and the boys stumbled through the doorway in a bizarrely balletic fashion, floating with impossible grace as they got in each other's way. Only one of them had a gun, but the other three had knives, and all four were ready for action. There was something irredeemably comical about the way they stopped short as they caught sight of the scene unfolding before their eyes. Their jaws dropped. Their eyes seemed actually to bulge. Under normal circumstances, of course, they'd have threatened Sheila with their weapons. They'd have threatened to hit her and then they'd probably have slashed her face, not because she was being uncooperative in refusing to tell them where Darren was, but simply because they were pumped up and incapable of containing their violence. 
They might even have raped her and told themselves afterwards that they were teaching Darren a lesson. But when they saw her tied up and helpless, apparently being threatened by a man in a suit, if only with a spoon, a different set of reflexes kicked in. Suddenly, Sheila was one of their own, at the mercy of a feral bureaucrat. Somehow, the tall man had crossed the estate with his briefcase without attracting sufficient attention to be mugged, but he wasn't inconspicuous anymore. The members of the pack hurled themselves upon the outsider. At first, they probably only tended to kick the shit out of him, but three of them were wielding knives. The one with the gun never fired it. He, at least, still had a vestige of self-restraint. The others were not so intimidated by the talismanic power of their own armaments. The killing would probably have qualified as manslaughter rather than murder, even if it hadn't seemed to its perpetrators to be a clear case of justifiable homicide. Not one of the boys was capable of formulating an intention to kill within the very limited time at their disposal. Even so, the tall man was doomed within a matter of seconds, down and out in ten at the most, and well on his way to extinction after forty, by which time his heart had presumably stopped, and his brain was no longer getting sufficient oxygen to function. The spoon flew from his hand and disappeared from view taking its cargo of aromatic pulp with it. Sheila had been saved in the proverbial nick of time, if the spoon had been held in place for ten seconds more. Sheila really had been saved, and she knew it. If she had breathed in the prescribed dose of the fifth perfume, she would have ceased to be herself and would have begun an inexorable process of becoming someone else. She never believed, even momentarily, that she would actually become one of the immortals of Atlantis, ready to take command of her faithful slaves and restore her sisters to life in order that they could take over the world and save humankind from self-destruction by means of benevolent dictatorship. She wasn't that mad, but she knew that however crazy or deluded Samaradak had been, he had been dead right about one thing. She wasn't really the person she thought she was, and never had been. There really was a flab-free, cellulite-free thinking individual lurking somewhere inside her, in the secret potentialities of her cellular makeup. A person who might have been able to get out if only four pathetic rivals of Darren's equally pathetic gang hadn't decided it was his turn to be taken out in their lame and stupid drug war. Sheila had no idea who that latent person might have been. She certainly couldn't put a name to her. One thing she did know, though, without a shadow of lingering doubt, was that all that hideous pain would somehow have been worthwhile if she had only been able to complete the ritual. It was a ritual, she decided even though it was really some kind of occult science and not mere magic at all. It was an initiation ceremony, a symbolic process of existential transition like marriage or graduation, but a million times better and more accurate. Whether she had turned out to be one of the immortals of Atlantis or not, Sheila knew that she would have become somebody. She would have become a butterfly person instead of a caterpillar person. Or maybe even better, a dragonfly person or someone equipped with a deadly sting. She'd not seen anything distinctly when she had sucked those first few wisps of vapour number five avidly into her aching lungs, but she'd felt a yearning for sight as she had never conceived before, or either thought conceivable, and still did. But she'd lost the opportunity, probably forever. When the police eventually turned up, in the wake of the ambulance she summoned to dispose of the body, she told them what had happened. She didn't identify the boys, of course, but it didn't take long for the police to figure out who'd done what to whom and why. When all the statements had been collected, all the stories matched, which made the police furious because they really wanted to put the boys away for something meatier than possession of illegal weapons, and Sheila too, for perverting the course of justice if nothing else. But they knew they wouldn't be able to make anything heavy stick, even though the victim had once been a respectable oceanographer before he had flipped his lid and gone round the bend. In the end, the body was taken away. Sheila was kicked out of the flat because it was a crime scene and because the bloodstains and all the miscellaneous potentially toxic contaminants would need the careful attention of a specialist cleaning squad before the council could deem it fit for rehabilitation. 
Darren could not be found, but social services managed to locate Tracy so that she could be temporarily rehoused along with her mother in a single room in a rundown B&B. In the 20 minutes or so before Tracy skipped out again to find somewhere less suitable to sleep, Sheila gave her a big hug. There's no need to worry about me, love, she said unnecessarily. I'm okay, really I am. But I want you to know before you go that I love you very much. There was, of course, much more that she might have said. She might have said that she wanted her daughter to know that she was the flesh of her flesh, and that it was a very special flesh, and that if ever a mysterious man came into her life who'd been messing around with ooze dragged up from the remote ocean bed, and he'd picked up some sort of infection from it that had driven him completely around the twist, then maybe she should show a little patience, because it would probably be Samaradak, reincarnate again, and trying heroically to fulfil his age-long mission, just like the freaking bandages from the mummy, but in a smoother sort of way. She didn't, of course. That would have been ridiculous. And Tracy wouldn't have taken a blind bit of notice. Once Tracy had gone, though, and Sheila was alone in her filthy and claustrophobic room with the TV on for company but not really watching it, she couldn't help wondering whether there might be a glimmer of hope. Not just for her and Tracy or Darren, but for the whole eco-catastrophe-threatened world. She decided eventually that she might as well believe that there was. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brian's. Hopefully, we'll try and, I'll try and sneak a few more off Brian as well. He's got enough to go around. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much. And Crispy, thank you, sir. What a story. So next up is Cheap Skates, our review by Adam. Adam, sir. Greetings to my fellow coach class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. Well, Cheapskates, I have a gift for you. Two bonus mini reviews for you at the top of the show. The title of first, well, you've actually heard it several times already during my intro. Stumped? Maybe a personal story will help you solve my little mystery. My first computer as a young child was, appropriately enough, called an Atom Computer. It was an offshoot of the ColecoVision video game system, which has a fascinating history of its own, starting with Coleco Industries selling leather-to-shoe companies in the 1930s and continuing after the Atom Computer with the invention and selling of Cabbage Patch dolls. And talking ALF dolls. Seriously. That's apropos of nothing except to get to this. One of my favorite things to do with the Atom computer was to pop out the audio cassettes, which the computer used as a cheap and readily available storage medium, and stick them into a standard cassette player. What was cool was that because the ones and zeros were stored magnetically on what was intended to be a medium for audio, you could actually hear your programs and documents as a series of high and low tones. Just try that with a USB flash drive. Still stumped with what I'm talking about? Well, here, I'll turn up the volume of the title for you. Yep, that's right. The book for the first review was written in binary. 
there's nary a Latin character in sight, just ones and zeros. And these tones, well, I guess this would be the first thing you'd hear on the audiobook, if it existed. For those of you keeping score at home, the full title of the book is, bear with me now, Zero one zero zero one one zero one 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 zero one 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 zero one zero zero by zero one zero one zero zero ah screw it by Robin Michael Smith. His name is Robin Michael Smith. Run all these numbers through a binary translator, and you get the English title. Anatomy of a Robot. The sheer devious genius of this is the chore it takes to translate anything more than the title. Amazon, obviously, doesn't want to have customers possessing the ability to do a copy and paste of full works, so to decode the binary takes typing it into a binary translator by hand. A bit of a disclaimer here. Using this book on a segment dedicated to reviews of free ebooks is a bit of a cheat, as the list price of the binary anatomy of a robot is actually $2.99. However, I picked up the ebook and the separate companion volume, which, thankfully, has the same thing in full English, absolutely free on a sale. Smith appears to use the option to make his works available for free quite often, so if you keep an eye out, I don't think you'll have trouble getting these for free if you want. And there, my friends is the key phrase. If you want. Don't get me wrong. I think having both an English and binary version of these stories is pretty clever, and I love the devil-may-care audacity to even put it up on Amazon with a $3 price tag, even if some others who paid for the book are, understandably, upset by it. The general plot concept holds some promise, too. Essentially, we are reading the secret musings of a highly realistic anthropomorphic robot designed to replace a woman's husband who had not traveled to her to Phobos above Mars. To me, this actually makes releasing a binary version make a bit of sense. Any private robotic journal would conceivably be in ones and zeros, although probably better encrypted. I guess I see it as performance art rather than a scam. But I'm reminded of my college journalism professor, who once used my political cartoons that I drew for the campus paper to demonstrate that having a good concept doesn't mean it's going to be well executed. I completely deserve that critique, too. 
I can't draw, but, well, I needed the class credit. In the same way, Smith's actual book, In Practice, is a pretty poor bit of writing, even if I was intrigued by the concept. There are rare moments of artistry, like here, for example, where the robot muses on his human lover calling him a technological marvel. I imagine myself a wonder, a marvel, as a gorgon was wonderful and marvelous. Yes, I have wings of gold, but I have the tusks of a boar, brazen claws, swirling eyes, fangs like razors, and a viscous, protruding tongue. Not bad, right? Well, the way this passage continues is, unfortunately, more typical of the work. I am deadly, even as I hang upon her door in the form of magic, apotropaic magic. Just to be sure there is no intention to hurt her, I hand her my head so that I do not turn her to stone and give her the blood from the right side of me, a systematic nod to the basement of sorrow that I cannot completely grasp outside of allegory, myth, and philosophy. Anybody actually manage to follow that? Don't worry if you don't. Smith gets so esoterically deep that even an educated reader is drowning in a sea of obscure references and aggravated assault with a thesaurus. But at least there's some stilted and unnecessary sex scenes, right? I mean, what's a book titled Anatomy of a Robot without a bit of... anatomy? I wish I could tell you I won't tell you how the book concludes because I don't want to give away the ending. The truth is, I won't tell you the ending because I don't know how it ends. And I read it. Anatomy of a Robot ultimately collapses into a vague, chaotic jumble. At least Smith seems to own the criticism leveled at his work, and maybe even use it to some of his own advantage. I'm guessing at this based on a video he created promoting Anatomy of a Robot as a sensation and then proceeding to quote reader reviews such as, Demand a refund. I had to give it one star, as I could not give it no stars. And, my personal favorite, The author should be jailed. I'd never go that far, but Smith demonstrates something I've realized as I look into publishing an ebook of my own short stories on Kindle. Ebooks have completely changed the landscape of book publishing. In online books... The gatekeeper of an editor and publisher can essentially disappear. So, on the one hand, it's never been easier for authors with talent to self publish online for free and reach their audience without the risk of laying out costs. And it certainly opens the door to creative, experimental work. Seriously, what traditional publisher is going to take a chance on a binary book? On the other hand, it's never been easier for talentless hacks to put their work out there and charge money for it. In short, you have to sift through a lot of crap to find the gemstones. I wouldn't put Smith's work in the category of complete refuse, however. Just a chunk of coal trying really, really hard to be a diamond. What his books need are some pressure in the form of good editors and a lot of time. Moving on to a book I recommend wholeheartedly. The book of the summer for science fiction nerds was, I think, 
Red Shirts by John Scalzi, who, incidentally, was host of this year's Hugo Awards. I know I put this one on my list after hearing an interview with Scalzi on NPR's Talk of the Nation. Scalzi takes Star Trek red shirts and turns them into the protagonists. You know the red shirts joke, right? They were the guys in red on Star Trek who you'd never seen before who get eaten by the space monster before the commercial break. Making them the main characters is a fun concept that any Star Trek fan is going to latch on to. So imagine my surprise when, in one of my regular trolls of the free books available on the Kindle store, I came across none other than red shirts. My immediate reaction was a gasp and a hushed, No way! Well, there was indeed no way, unfortunately. What I had run across was instead red shirts, chapters 1 to 4, available for free. Was it a tease? Oh, you bet your sweet phaser banks it was. But it turns out Red Shirts is just the kind of book science fiction fans will want to get teased into. You might think from just the first few chapters that Red Shirts is simply a playful parody. After all, it takes place in a universe that seems a deliberate ripoff of Star Trek. Instead of the Federation, we have the Universal Union, or W, as everyone refers to it. Instead of phasers, we see crew-wielding pulse guns. One notable difference, which made me grin, was that rather than the flip-open communicators, everyone just carries smartphones and texts each other. A nod to just how far modern technology came from the original Star Trek's vision of the future, at least in this area. In later chapters after the first four, it plays on other absurdities of science fiction shows, like how inertial dampeners always stop working during a battle, sending the bridge crew lurching around, or how even if the damage to a ship is decks away, there's always at least one bridge station exploding in sparks. But if the free four chapters do tease you, and you go ahead and buy, or, like me, borrow the full book, you'll discover a much deeper and fascinating plot than a straightforward silly satire of Star Trek tropes, though there is that, too. One and only one caution on red shirts. When I spoke to several like-minded sci-fi nerd friends, they said they didn't enjoy red shirts because of the three codas that Scalzi includes at the end of the book after the main story is finished. Just as red shirts took extras and made them the stars, these three short stories take extras from the main story of Red Shirts and makes them the focus. I was a little confused by this adverse reaction to the stories because I rather enjoyed them and found them to be some of the most touching and insightful of the book. And the first coda just made me smile in recognition. It reminded me of my favorite writers whose blogs I follow. You just want to be that selfish fan and tell them, Get to work already! Patrick Rothfuss, I love you, but I'm looking at you on this one, my friend. What happens to the king killer? Ah! Anyway, if I had to guess, I'd say that the bad reaction to the codas was because they didn't know they were coming, while I'd been aware ahead of starting the book. So let me do you a favor. There are three codas at the end of the book, and it's a big chunk of the pages, about a third. 
my advice is to just sit back, enjoy, and think of them like the bonus features on a DVD of a television series. And on that point, to any television producers who might possibly be listening, please figure out a way to turn Red Shirts into a good television series. It's just begging for a loving adaptation. And, well, I'm begging too. All right, wow. Those mini-reviews turned out a little bigger than I'd thought, but things needed to be said. On to the feature presentation, shall we? My selection for September is the first of what I hope will be an occasional series within my series, namely free short story anthologies. If you're a regular listener to Starship Sofa, chances are good that you enjoy, or at least appreciate, the short story length in science fiction. While this form is smaller, that doesn't necessarily equate to easier. A quotation applies here that's had some version commonly attributed to Blaise Pascal, Mark Twain, Henry David Thoreau, Cicero, and Nietzsche, among others. Essentially, it's, I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. Brevity and finding the perfect words takes time and skill and patience and sacrifice. And so... I'd like to start my celebration of the short story with the free anthology, Some of the Best from Tor.com, 2011 edition. That title might come off as a bit pedantic, but that belies what you'll find inside this collection. For free, Tor has provided eight short stories from just a few dozen pages all the way up to novella length. The authors are not second-rate either. Some you'll recognize right off the bat, such as Matthew Sanborn-Smith, Michael Swanick, and Harry Turtledove. Even those you might not have heard of before offer up some fantastic samples of their work. The collection is even more impressive because each piece is just so completely different from all of the others. I'm going to do my best to convey my impressions and the sense of each story, but I'll give you my advice up front. Get these even while you're listening, but uh, not if you're driving. They're not good enough to risk a close encounter of the arborist kind. First up, we have Six Months, Three Days by Charlie Jane Anders, which, I might add, recently won the 2012 Hugo Award for Best Novelette. Some of you with better memories than I might not have to do a web search to recall that this was among the stories featured in the Fiction Crawler segment contributed by Matthew Sanborn-Smith in Starship Sofa episode 222 back in January. I don't want to repeat his praise here too much, but let me recap the basic premise and offer a little of my take. Six months, three days, refers to the precise amount of time that the main characters, Judy and Doug, will date. And they both know this with certainty from the very outset. This is because Doug is the man who can see the future, and Judy is the woman who can see many possible futures. I have the most sympathy for poor Doug here. It's like his abilities have left him just so jaded and bitter about life. Here's a short passage I think encapsulates that. Doug feels an unfamiliar sensation, and he realizes after a while it's comfort. 
He's never felt this at home with another human being, especially after such a short time. Doug is accustomed to meeting people and knowing bits and pieces of their futures from stuff he'll learn later. Or if Doug meets you and doesn't know anything about your future, that means he'll never give a crap about you at any point down the line. This makes for awkward social interactions, either way. I just can't imagine living life that way. The story never goes into the how of their clairvoyance, and it doesn't have to. What I love about this piece is it encapsulates the free will versus predestination philosophical debate in a compelling, personal way that doesn't feel like you're exploring some deep, esoteric idea. For Judy and Doug, this question isn't some vague, irrelevant concept. It's central to their perspective and their very lives. This is a read you won't regret. Next we have Michael Swanick's The Dollar Horse. You might remember Swanick from his How to Run a Con promotional bits here on the sofa, featuring Daga and Surplus from his novel Dancing with Bears. Here Swanick presents us with a story that, on its face, is classic fairy tale, closely paralleling Little Red Riding Hood bringing goodies to her grandmother except it quickly becomes apparent from little hints that we're dealing with a post-apocalypse world that has collapsed in tatters. Those who have survived view the leftover high technology through a more ancient worldview, like the knapsack that can walk itself, the map that can change what it shows, and a Scandinavian dollar horse that proves to be much more than it initially appears. It really reminds me of the old Arthur C. Clarke chestnut, his third law, stating any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. This story itself is magic, with a clear, engaging voice and the beautiful, bold strokes of any classic fairy tale. For the next story, A Clean Sweep with All the Trimmings, by James Allen Gardner, I feel compelled to review in the voice such as the one with which I am speaking to you now. After all, it fits the style like a tuxedo to a penguin, capiche? <clears throat> yeah, I just can't keep it up, though. Yes, Gardner's work is absolutely dripping with 20s, 30s, and possibly 40s era lingo and nostalgia. At the end, I expect the protagonist to come right out and say, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Gardner admits to a heavy influence from Damon Runyon in this piece, the writer upon whose work the musical Guys and Dolls was based. In a clean sweep, we are dropped into the first-person narrative of a professional fixer who makes his living cleaning up potentially embarrassing messes, especially if J. Edgar Hoover comes across them. In this case, the particular mess is a robotic spaceman wearing a green fedora with an unusually high tolerance level for the hot lead that was just pumped into him. The narrator eventually finds himself dodging robotic copies of this first assassin, all while trying to protect a doll with some particularly irresistible personality traits. There's a lot of twists down this path, but you'll enjoy the thrills as you take the corners. Now, a regular here on Starship Sofa is Matthew Sanborn Smith, who also has a contribution in this collection. 
beauty belongs to the flowers. Starting into the story, I can't say I cared much for the main character, Matsumoto Miho, a teenage girl living in a futuristic Nagasaki. She has trouble thinking past her immediate desires, and barely has a time of day for her own father, who is actually dying from nanites gone haywire in his body. I highly suspect that my low tolerance level for Miho has to do with my low tolerance level for the pains of puberty generally. This, by the way, bodes not well for my future. And in Miho's world, teenagers are even more set up to be shallow and superficial than in ours. Practically everyone wears special contacts that not only keep them connected with all the rest of the world at all times, but they can also overlay reality with custom skins, as it were, meaning that they're rarely seeing things as they are, but rather a more glossy, smooth version. What's more, one can even go so far as to purchase an idealized feminine robot with features to the manga extreme, which is an instigator of the conflict in this piece, considering Miho's love interest has left her in favor of one such robot. Despite my initial frustration with Miho, however, I came around, largely because of the deep texture that Smith provides in a well-planned setting. The ending in particular was shocking and horrifying, but uh, shocking and horrifying in a good way, if that makes any kind of sense at all. I won't give away more than to say this. The ultimate message seems to be that there is a beauty in fragility, transience, and carnality that technology will never be able to reproduce. And that, in a strange way, I find comforting. Next up is the shortest piece in the collection, A Vector Alphabet of Interstellar Travel by Yoon Ha Lee, but it's certainly one of my favorites of the collection. Yoon Ha Lee is writing in an encyclopedic style, with little sketches of how different imagined species both travel among the stars and how they view this travel. Among the offerings are the followers of the destruction goddess Mritaya, who view their interstellar travel as the inevitable spread of a disease through the cosmos. Then there are the Eothal, obsessed with their libraries of knowledge, so much so that the purpose of their ships is to imprint what they've learned upon the very fabric of the universe. We also get to meet the dancers, upon whom neighbors have attached significant meaning to the complex movement of their vessels. We have the Kiati, who view their own star drives as a type of currency for trade. And, most intriguingly, we have a star drive that kills anyone who travels on it, but that still never lacks for passengers. I'm a huge sucker for this style. To begin with, I appreciate the subtle craft of intriguing stories contained within a tiny space. I especially love seeing the sheer volume of creative ideas one author can come up with on a single topic. If I could compare it to classical music, this format is theme with variations of the literary world, and when done correctly, it's a beautiful thing. To use another metaphor, these are like a buffet of small, beautifully designed gourmet foods that you want to nibble at and savor, rather than devour like a novel. 
If you read this story and agree with my taste, I'd also suggest checking out The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species by the now Hugo Award-winning author Ken Yu. Congratulations, by the way, to Ken for his Hugo on the tear-jerking The Paper Menagerie. The Bookmaking Habits of Select Species is basically what the title suggests, and you can hear a free narration by Stefan Rudnicki over on the August Lightspeed Magazine podcast. If you want something a little more long-form, check out Invisible Cities by one of my all-time favorite authors, Italo Calvino. Calvino, if you haven't run across him yet, brilliantly balances that intersection of science fiction, fantasy, and literary fiction. This work has Marco Polo describing a series of 55 fantastic cities to the Emperor Kublai Khan. Any description I attempt of this beautiful book will simply fall short. I only hope that you take my word for it and fall in love with the rich prose of Calvino as I have. Finally, for a more recent work, check out David Eagleman's Some 40 Tales from the Afterlives. That's some spelled S-U-M. Again, the title really tells what this one is all about. Different imaginings of what happens to us after we die. They range all the way from an afterlife where you relive all your experiences, this time grouped by category, to one where we are all irrelevant to God because he acts on the level of bacterium. You have to approach him as creative and not get a dander up thinking of them as heretical. And if you can do so, they'll make you really reflect and ponder. Again, each story sparkles on its own, but together, his work forms a priceless crown. All right, on to Ragnarok by Paul Park. Again, we have a complete shift in style from the story before, this time slipping into the mode of epic poetry, such as you might find with Beowulf or the Iliad. However, this is written as though that epic poetry was about a long-ago post-apocalyptic event. Instead of a sword, we have a precious Glock 9, and rather than landscapes of bogs and forests, the characters cross cinder blocks, barbed wire, and overturned cars of a destroyed world. I can't say that it's my favorite in the collection, but neither does epic poetry much appeal to me. I think if the story had been extended out a bit longer... I would have enjoyed it more. It's certainly high craft, however, an expertly written bit of work and worth experiencing. I will, toward the end here, break from my otherwise unblemished praise for the collection. Hello Moto by Needy Okorafor just didn't do it for me. I largely expect that this is a result of not understanding the Nigerian cultural context in which it was written. But there you have it. The premise is that the narrator, named Rain, has invented three wigs, yeah, wigs, that combine complex technology with witchcraft. These wigs allow their three wielders, wearers, to bend people and events around them to their will, allowing for their own perfect happiness at the expense of everyone and everything around them. The creator of the wigs realizes the horror of what she has made and tries to send a virus to make all the wigs shut down. This unsuccessful, they have a showdown, and then... And, well, I can't tell you what then. 
Okorafor broke off the end of the story in the middle of a sentence, just as I have. It might be artistically clever, but as a reader, I just find it annoying. I have no idea what to think. Is she leaving it up to me to decide what happened? Or maybe Rain died? I simply have no idea. Finally, we have Stettle Days by the incomparable master of alternate history fiction, Harry Turtledove. Turtledove gives us the largest work of the collection, more than a third of the pages, and also logs the longest other works pages, with more than 90 books and novels listed. Stettle Days, perhaps as a consequence of its longer length, takes a while to get going. We spend most of the first pages following Jacob Schleifer, a Jewish shop owner and jack-of-all-trades living in pre-World War II Poland. This section was mildly interesting, but certainly nothing I haven't run across before. I actually found myself annoyed somewhat at all the insertion of Yiddish words and phrases. Not so much because it's Yiddish, but because I've usually found that such insertions of a foreign language usually do little to add to the story and are there more to say, hey look, I know a foreign language. My fandom of Lord of the Rings and the elven you find in there will reveal this hypocrisy for what it is, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. However, the story quite literally walked through a door I didn't expect and that perspective shift got me hooked. I won't ruin the experience of that moment by telling you more, but just say, stick with it, if you're frustrated by the beginnings. My only other critique of the story is with the end of it, but rather than being too long, I thought the conclusion of the story was too short. Once I had bought into the conceit of the story, I discovered that I was wanting more. If Turtle Dove were to turn this into a full novelization, delving deeper into the world and the natural conflicts of the dystopia, I think said novel would certainly attract my attention. If you read the eight stories and find yourself wanting more from Tor.com, there are some options out there at pretty reasonable cost. You can subscribe to the Tor.com e-zine at the cost of 99 cents per month, or type Tor.com into the search bar at Amazon and you'll find page after page of original short fiction ebooks available from Tor, most for 99 cents as well. As usual, I'll provide links on my blog, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com, to as much of the content mentioned here that I can find, probably rather more than I typically have on an episode. So that's all today for Cheapskates. Theme music is by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. Now, just I was looking on Adam's website as well. I just, he had himself, you know, with this little story. Or this kind, you had a story in a competition. There, he'd been interviewed by his local radio station and everything like that. So, it's starting to kick off for Adam with his writing. Well done, sir. So that is Starship Sofa's show two hundred and fifty-seven. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you, you know, something there's tickled your fancy.
Do you want to say a couple of thank yous too? There's been some people out there who's done some donations lately this past couple of weeks. Thank you so much for them. That was really, wow, thank you very much. And for the gentleman that bought the originals, the <laughs> myself and Kieran, who did that. Wow, you know what I mean? You need a medal. So thank you so much for that. Don't forget about the Joe Haldeman Forever War Lecture talk. Oh, <laughs> 11th of November, come over to the front of the website if you want to have tickets for that, please. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Open in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.